Welcome to the Northwood Baptist Church Podcast. I'm Tommy Metter, lead pastor at Northwood right here in North Charleston, South Carolina. And I am so thankful that you are taking the time today to listen to this message. And I do hope and pray that what you are about to hear encourages you, blesses you, helps you to understand the Word of God better, and most importantly, reminds you of how much the God of all creation loves you. I think today's message is going to be a blessing to you. So thank you for listening. And if you're in the North Charleston area, we would love to have you on our campus any Sunday morning at either 9.30 or 11 o'clock. If you're not in the North Charleston area, you can always find us on the web, northwoodbaptist.com. You can visit our YouTube page. You can visit our Facebook page. You can live stream us every Sunday morning at 9.30 or 11. We would love for you to be our guest, either on campus or online. So you're welcome to join us anytime you'd like. We'd love to have you. I do hope that today's message is a blessing and encouragement to you. And I hope that today's message helps you connect faith to life. Take your Bibles and turn back to the Gospel of Luke. We're in Luke chapter 22 this morning. Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 47. We're going to study down through verse 62 together. So Luke 22, 47 through 62. In a moment, I'm going to read to you, beginning in verse 47. We'll read down to verse 53 together. But we're going to, t- we're going to study the entire passage this morning. So go ahead and find that in your copy of God's Word. If you're new to Northwood, we've been journeying through Luke's Gospel now for over a year. And we are getting closer and closer to the end of Luke's gospel, and this morning, as we're continuing to study uh, these final hours of the life of Jesus leading up to his crucifixion, like we really are on some uh, some hallowed ground in this text this morning. There's a certain gravity uh, to this text that I want you to see and understand this morning, so go ahead and find Luke 22 in your Bibles. If you did not bring a Bible with you, that's okay, because you should find a Bible in the seat before you. Down the book rack there, you'll find a copy of the Bible. I would love for you to pick that Bible up and find Luke 22 with us. If you're new to the Bible, the Gospel of Luke isn't too hard to find. Uh, you can find the New Testament in your Bible. If you can find the New Testament, you can find the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, we're in the third Gospel, Luke chapter 22, verses 47 through 62. If you don't own a Bible, I would love for you to take that Bible home with you. Read it and learn about the God that loves you and desires a relationship with you. Luke 22 is where we are this morning, verses 47 through 62. We'll read that together in just a moment. Hey, I just need to let you know that I had Friday night, an experience. You know, over the course of your life, you have some of those defining moments, those life-altering experiences. And, and, and Friday night, Stacy and I, we, we had one. Uh, so we went to a pastor's retreat uh, with several pa- pastors in our area all across Charleston, went to Myrtle Beach for a couple days. It was a lot of fun. Got to connect with some pastors out and get to connect with a whole lot. And so it was really good for that. Uh, but on Friday night, they let us have a date night. So, so we went out and went to dinner. And after dinner, I went to this place. Now, I knew it existed because we have one in Mount Pleasant. But Mount Pleasant, but you know, it's one thing to know things, it's other thing to know things, and, and so we went to this place called the Crazy Mason. You ever heard of this? Like, why didn't y'all tell me? So, so this place is amazing. So as soon as I walked in, like, what I saw at first was this sign that said, Bluebell ice cream proudly served, like I knew, okay, we're in the promised land, 
we've made it. And so we sat down and we began to look at that menu. If you don't know what the Crazy Mason is, it's like this, this milkshake place where they use bluebell ice cream as a base, these milkshakes. And then they have like all these different milkshake things they do. And so they gave us this menu. And this menu like is, is huge. I don't know, there must've been 145 different milkshakes you can choose from. And, and, and so, so, so Stacy and I began looking at the menu. And I'll be honest with you, like it ain't cheap, right? Like, like one milkshake, there's 15 bucks. Like that's expensive. You can buy several cartons of Bluebell. Well, two, you can buy two cartons of Bluebell for $15. And so I'm like, okay, I love my wife, but we ain't ordering two. You see what I'm saying? Like uh, we ain't getting $30 for the milkshakes. It's just not happening. So, so Stacy and I, we're trying to read through the menu to decide what we're going to share together. And so, so, so we're reading this thing and Stacy's a little bit more indecisive than I am. So like six hours later, we finally made the decision like as to what kind of milkshake we we're going to have. And we had, it, it was called the, the Sweet Jesus Milk. Shake. You get it? Like, yeah, I know. That's, but anyway, so it's a cheesecake milkshake. Let me show you this thing. Like, look at this. And then a, my friend, like, they put a slice of cheesecake on top of the milkshake. Like, some, you know what I'm saying? Like, like, they brought that thing out. I, you, you could hear the angels singing from the heavens. And, and I mean, I just, it was just a spiritual experience, right? Like, and, and so she had her straw, had her straw. It's so thick, you can't suck the stuff out of it kind of thing. So we got our spoons and, and Stacy wanted to take the cheesecake off of it and, eat, and put it on like a plate. I'm like, no, we going just like it is, right? And so, so, so we're trying to eat this thing. And I just wanna let you know, like, I love my wife. And, and, and in that moment, like, I've never been been more committed to my marriage than I was in that moment, right? Like, like, because I wasn't going anywhere. Because I know if I left the table to go to the bathroom, whatever, like she'd eat the whole thing without me. So like, so like, like, you know, I, I'm, I'm in, like I'm all in, I'm committed to that thing. I'm committed to her. Like, like it, 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 it was like one of the best experiences of our entire marriage, I think. And so like, it was glorious, right? Like, man, like I'm having an experience just thinking about it right now. Like it was just so good. Like, and I tell you that, like, you know, silly story, like, I am. Like, I'm committed to my marriage, period. And, and here you are in this room. I know we've got lots of couples in here that you're married. And, and, and many of you, like me, would say, man, I'm committed, not because of a milkshake, but because of, like, this love I have for my spouse. I'm committed. Maybe you're in this room and you're not married. You're single. You hope to be married someday. Whatever the case may be, there still are probably some relationships, like, you're committed to. If you're a parent, you're committed to your children. If you're, you know, you've got parents, you're committed to your parents. Or you've got some close friendships you're committed to. Like, we all have relationships inside the body of Christ. We're committed to each other. Like, we all have relationships that we're committed to. We know what commitment means. And we also know, unfortunately, what it's like to see commitments broken. Like, I know this in this room, there are some of you that you've experienced the pain and hurt of abandonment. Like somebody's walked out on you. Uh, you've, have someone, you've had someone desert you in your life. And, and so you understand that pain. Like we understand the significance of commitment. And we also understand the significance of when a commitment is broken. Jesus is committed to you. So much so that he would go to a cross and die the death that you deserve and rise again from the dead for you. Like he has proven that he's committed to you. But listen, can I tell you, like we really do struggle in our commitment to him. Especially when like life gets tough or there's some challenges, like there's this tendency within us sometimes 
to walk away, to abandon, to backslide, however you want to describe it. Like we've probably all at some point in our Christian journey been there where, where we know that God is committed to us, but we've kind of slacked in our commitment to him. And I don't want that for us. I don't want that for you. I don't want that for me. Like I want to respond to the commitment of Jesus Christ by being fully surrendered in my relationship with him, committed to him. You see what I'm saying? And so I wanna look at this story this morning, which is a powerful story. And I wanna show you two warnings from this text that, that you and I, this morning, we need to heed because I think if we'll heed these warnings, it will help us to grow in our commitment to Jesus Christ. So take your Bibles, look at Luke 22 with me, if you will. We're gonna start reading in verse 47 down through verse 53. So go ahead and rise to your feet as we honor the ring of God's word together. Luke 22, beginning in verse 47. This is what the Bible says. While Jesus was still speaking, suddenly a mob came and one of the 12 named Judas was leading them. He came near Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the son of man with a kiss? And when those around him saw what was going to happen, they asked, Lord, should we strike with the sword? Then one of them struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. But Jesus responded, no more of this. And touching his ear, he healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, the temple police, and the elders who had come for him, have you come out with swords and clubs as if I were a criminal? Every day while I was with you in the temple, you never laid a hand on me. But this is your hour and the dominion of darkness. Father, thank you for this morning and for the opportunity we have to be together as your people uh, to, to study your word together. And we trust that the spirit of God right now is present among us. You're with us. You're with us to minister to us, to speak to us, uh, to convict us, to challenge us, to sanctify us. And so uh, we want to listen well to what you are saying to us this morning. So Heavenly Father, we trust that in these moments as you speak, you're gonna help us. You're gonna help us to listen well to what you're saying because we wanna be the kind of people that are growing in our commitment to you. We, we know that, uh, that our human hearts are prone to wander and we know we need your help with that. And so would you please, Spirit of God, Focus us in these moments on what you're saying to us. And would you help us this morning to listen well, uh, to have a desire this morning to respond well to your word through faith and obedience. Thank you, Jesus, that you are uh, with us, ministering to us. Be glorified in these moments, I ask, and ask it in Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat. So if you were with us last week, you know where we are in the story on this Thursday evening before the death of Jesus on Good Friday. Last week we were in the Garden of Gethsemane and we saw Jesus in the garden agonizing in prayer. He knows what's to come. He knows that he is going to drink the cup of God's wrath and he agonizing, agonizes in prayer for hours over what's to come as he looks toward the crucifixion that he's going to experience. But you also know last week we saw it. That as Jesus wrestles with the Father in prayer, he rises up to stand boldly for us. He rises up with, with resolve to go to the cross and do the work that his father sent him to do. And notice what the text says, right? So, so Jesus has just told his disciples, you know, you guys need to wake up. You're, you're sleeping and, and you should be praying instead of sleeping or you're gonna fall into temptation. And then you come to verse 47 and you see what the text says. While he was still speaking, suddenly a mob came and one of the 12 named Judas was leading them. 
Now, you know the story. Many of you, you're like me. You grew up in church. You've been around the church long enough to know this story. And and so this story, when we read the statement, and one of the 12, Judas, came, it doesn't surprise us because we know the story. But my friend, like, this is a big deal. Because what the gospel writer Luke is showing us is that this whole thing, it's an inside job. Like, like Judas. Now, now, obviously, Jesus has predicted this. At the, the Last Supper, Jesus told the disciples who were there, the, uh, the 12, that one at the table would, would, would betray him, and it is Judas. And I, I can imagine that as, as Judas approaches with the company of soldiers and the chief priests and the temple police and, and, and those that were there on that night, that the disciples are just shocked. Like, they just didn't see it coming. Like, it's an inside job. And if you think about this inside job, what Judas does is he exposes himself as an absolute hypocrite. Like we've seen Jesus talk about hypocrisy before. I don't know if you remember or not, but way back when in in Luke chapter 12 and 13 and 14, these hard teachings of Jesus, Jesus is constantly exposing the religious leaders for their hypocrisy. But now we're finding out that Judas, like he's an even bigger hypocrite because he's on the inside. I mean, think about it. You know his experience. You know that Judas was there. You think way back earlier in Luke's gospel when Jesus was there on the boat and the storm was raging and Jesus stood up and he said to the waters, peace be still, and that storm stopped. Like Judas was there. Like he saw this marvelous display of the power of God. He was there. You think about on that day when Jesus was with the multitude and, and there was no food to eat and, and Jesus took some fish and bread and, and blessed it and multiplied and fed 5,000 men and their wives and their children. Like Judas was there, like he ate of the food that Jesus miraculously, right, uh, broke and, and, and created on that day. Like he was there, he witnessed that. Not only that, but you think about in, in Luke's gospel and, and when, when Jesus, or excuse me, in John's gospel, when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, like Judas was there. Or you think about in John chapter 13, when Jesus stoops down and begins to wash the feet of his disciples, like he was there. In that moment, not only then, but think about all the the times that Jesus taught the multitude, like he was there too. He heard the teachings of Jesus. He saw how the crowds responded to the teachings of Jesus. And not only that, but you know, the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, while they give us so much information about the life and ministry and death and resurrection of Jesus, there's obviously things that the gospels don't tell us. They don't don't tell us about some of those personal, private moments that Jesus had with his followers and maybe some of those individual conversations that Jesus would have had with Judas or the others. Like, all I'm telling you, like, he is the ultimate insider. He had seen it. He had experienced it. He had heard it. He had tasted it. But in spite of all that, like, his heart is hard. And now in these moments, as as Judas comes to Jesus, Jesus is already warned, like at the table where they share the Passover meal, Jesus is warning there. It seems to me as if it is the case up to the end that Jesus just continues, knowing that Judas is going to betray him, he continues to extend grace. So good. Like it obviously doesn't catch Jesus by surprise. He knows this is coming. 
But, but if you go over and look at Matthew's gospel, when Matthew in Matthew chapter 26 retells this story, when Judas approaches with the company of soldiers, so good. Jesus looks at Judas and says, friend, friend, do what you've come to, friend. He calls him friend. And even here in this text, I mean, come down and look what it says. It says, uh, one of the 12 named Judas was leading them. He came near to Jesus to kiss him. You probably know this in that, that ancient culture, like the kiss of someone on the cheek. It was a sign of intimate friendship. I mean, uh, this is just bad. Like, this is a bad way to betray someone with this intimate display of, of friendship. But yet Jesus says, Judas are you betraying the son of man with a kiss? It's almost as if Jesus is saying to Judas, right? Like, come on, Judas. Do you know what you're doing? It just seems to me that, that up until the end, what Jesus is doing and how he interacts with Judas is that while Judas is betraying him, Jesus is just continuing in his compassion and mercy to extend grace. And isn't that good news for you? Because until your very last breath, right? Come on now. Until your very last breath, Jesus is going to extend grace and mercy to you. You see it in the life of Judas. And you're gonna see it in your life as well that until the end, Jesus is going to extend grace and mercy to you. There's always hope for you if you'll turn from your sins and turn to him by faith. But, but here's the question. We've got to wrestle with like, what happens here? Like, why is, why is it? Why is it that Judas betrays Jesus? I mean, we don't have all the answers, obviously. I know that John, the gospel writer, over in John chapter six, he tells us uh, that, that Judas just didn't believe. Like, from the very beginning, we have this understanding that, that Judas just does not believe. He has a hard heart. And when we read the beginning part of Luke chapter 22, Right, His heart is so hard that he opens up the door for Satan to come in and take a foothold. He's just got a hard heart. Like on the outside, it looks like he's one of the 12. It looks like he is a follower of Jesus. But on the inside, now come on, he is far from Jesus. And so I think right here we stop and we consider this very clear warning, right? Going to the first slide, if you don't mind. Beware of a faith that does not endure. Beware of a faith that does not endure. Because here's reality, obviously Judas does not endure. When, when push comes to shove, when he has his moment, he betrays Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, revealing, right? Revealing that he actually has no faith at all. A faith that does not endure is not faith. You see what I'm saying? And so here's where we have to ask ourselves the question. Because in a room like this, and I, I, listen, here's what I'm not doing. And I don't want you to hear this from me. I'm not accusing us in this room of being Judases, right? But here's what I do know. That in a room like this, there are some of us who are around the things of God, who hear the things of God, who experience in some ways the blessings of being a part of a church, but our hearts are far from Jesus, that, that while we're in a place like this, around people of God like this, and, and you're here in this moment, the reality is if you were real honest with yourself, if you would take a deep look inward, the fact of the matter is if you were real honest, you would see about yourself that you've never been saved. 
You've been around the things of God. You've heard the things of God. You've witnessed the things of God in the lives of others, but you've never yourself turned from your own sins and given your life to Jesus. And, and I, I don't wanna call you this, but here's reality. For some of us in this room, it could be that we struggle with the same kind of hypocrisy that Judas struggled with over the course of his life. And I know you know this, or maybe you don't know this, so let me help you be aware of this. In the South, right, like we're, we're the kind of, of culture uh, that, that, that others describe, and maybe you've heard this description, we're described in the South as having this kind of cultural Christianity. You ever heard that before? That the South, right? In other parts of the country too, but specifically in the South, it seems like we struggle with cultural Christianity. You know what cultural Christianity is? It's this idea of, of we are part of the church just because it's just what we're supposed to do. You follow? Like, you're here this morning for some of us because it's just tradition or it's ritual because, you know, your, your grandma took you to church when you were a kid and then your mama took you and, and you're just stuck. Like, now you're here all the time and you don't even know why you're here. It's just kind of what we do. Like, we're good, moral people, but this idea of cultural Christianity is we're around the things of God but don't maybe actually know God. You see what I'm saying? Like, like that is an issue that, that, that plagues our churches in the South, this issue of cultural Christianity where our churches sometimes are full of people sitting in the seats who, who are just a part of the church because it's just what we do in a Southern culture. And cultural, cultural Christianity, I just want you to be aware, it does not save you. Right, what saves you is the gospel of Jesus Christ. You placing your faith in the one who died and rose again for you. You surrendering your life to him. That's what saves you, not cultural Christianity. But, but, but hear me now. The problem is that cultural Christianity plagues us. And it could be even in this room this morning, there are some of you that are given to cultural Christianity. And can I just tell you, like giving yourself to cultural Christianity, what it really is, it's hypocrisy because you aren't who you say you are. And so the question is why? Why would you give yourself to cultural Christianity? Why would you give yourself to hypocrisy in such a way that Judas does, where you're around the things of God, but you never actually walk with God? Why would you do that? Well, for some, now watch, it really is for personal gain. But what could you gain? Well, I don't know, lots of things, but a couple things I can think of. For some of us in this room, we're banking on the fact that when we're seven years old, we prayed a prayer and we gained something from that. We gained a get out of hell free card. And we're holding on to that get out of hell free card, even though we have no intention of actually walking with Jesus, right? I prayed a prayer and I went to church when I was a kid. I got baptized. That's what I'm holding on to. That's my gain, right? But you really have a heart that's nowhere near Jesus, or think about this, maybe you come to church every Sunday not because you're trying to gain Christ, but just gain some friendships because you know you need some friends that don't drink, cuss, and chew, right? So like, let's show up at a place like this where there's some good moral people because my kids, my grandkids need some moral influences in their lives. And, and so you're here because you're trying to gain, right, some friendships. I don't know what it is, but for some of us, we look at Christianity and think there's something for me to gain. And so I wanna be a part of that. But the thing we're not gaining is what... Christ has called us to gain, and it's him. You follow? So, so it really is personal gain. Or think about this. Some of us practice hypocrisy just out of relational appeasement because you know it. You know that if you don't go to church with your wife this Sunday, like she's gonna fuss at you all week long, and you just don't wanna deal with that. 
right? Or you know, like, you're, 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 if I don't go to church with my parents, like, they're going to make life hard for me because that's the rule in our house. And, and so I just go along to get along. I'm here because I'm here because I'm just trying to appease someone else. It's a big deal. And I don't know if we, we talk about it a whole lot or if you ever think about it, but for some of us, like, that's the reason why we are involved in the church because of cultural Christianity. There's this, there, there's this, this stigma that if I am not a part of this thing, then the people around me aren't gonna like me anymore or, or they're gonna reject me. So I, I gotta be here to appease people around me. Or think about this, right? It's external validation. There's something about this place that makes you feel good, right? Like when you show up and you get a little bit of encouragement from somebody, it makes you feel good. Or you, you serve a little bit. You showed up at Wanda Woods yesterday for a work day and you can go home patting yourself on the back and somebody else pat you on the back too like it made you feel good, right? You see what I'm saying? Like there's this validation that you personally receive that just makes you feel good about yourself. And that's why you keep coming back. For some of us, we come here for reasons other than the main reason, to actually know Christ, to walk with him. And I'm just telling you, like, that's the challenge in this text is, is I think the gospel writer is showing us what hypocrisy looks like. It's an insider who's around Jesus all the time, yet chooses to reject and not walk with Jesus. You think about Judas, like there was some personal gain for him. I bet you, and I don't know this because the gospel writers don't spell this out very clearly, but I bet you one of the reasons why he followed Jesus was because he thought like Jesus was gonna be this political king that was gonna come into power in Jerusalem and defeat Rome. And if he followed Jesus, man, he could be a part of it. He could be a part of this revolution, but the revolution wasn't what Judas thought it was gonna be and he was done. You see what I'm saying? I just don't know. I'm not, again, I'm not accusing anyone in this room of being a Judas, but I am saying, be careful. Be aware, beware. Like there is this hypocrisy that exists within our churches plagued by cultural Christianity that that you're here, but you may not really be here because you've never really given your life to Christ because you've failed to believe that he is the son of God who has come to deliver you from your sins. You see what I'm saying? So the story progresses. And there's another character we're introduced to. Character you know, but look what the text says. You come down to verse 49. When those around him saw what was going to happen, they asked, Lord, should we strike with a sword? Now, again, every gospel writer gives us a few different details of this account. And Luke, and I don't know why, but Luke leaves out a name that John gives us. Now, just imagine for a moment, like, it's happening. Uh, the, the text tells us that Judas brought with him a company of soldiers. In some translations, it says a band of soldiers. And, and in those days, a band of soldiers, it was 600 soldiers. Now, I'm not saying, I don't know if 600 soldiers came out that night or not, but it could have been. Like, it's, 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 it's big time overkill, if you will. Like, there's all these soldiers, there's the chief priest, there's the temple police, there's all these people, and, and Judas leads them right to Jesus. And if you're a disciple, if you're one of the 12, you've just been with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, you're praying, or you're not praying, you're sleeping. Jesus was praying, and you're in shock. Like, none of them saw it coming. They had just been fighting about who was the greatest and trying to figure out who was going to betray Jesus, and then it happens. They didn't see it coming. They didn't know it was gonna be Judas. And so they're in shock. And then one of the apostles, one of the 12, takes a sword because now 
It's time to go to war. It's happening, right? And one of the apostles said, Jesus, I will go to you, with you to the death. I'll fight for you. You know who it was? Old Peter. And Peter takes the sword and I don't know, I mean, I wasn't there. I don't know what it was like, but I can imagine like, it's, it's like a Barney Fife kind of moment. You know what I'm saying? Like, because obviously he did a pretty bad job. Like his job, he was a fisherman. You understand? Like there's a big difference between a fishing rod and a sword. You follow me? And so like, he's got the sword. Like he, he's not a soldier because if he was a good soldier, like you aim for the heart. You chop off a head. Like he obviously missed, right? Like he gets the ear and clips the ears, the guy's ear off. John the gospel writer tells us the name of the guy. His name is Malchus. He's the servant of the, of the chief priest. And I mean, his, his ear just falls right off. And, and Peter's like looking at this bloody head and like, it's just a mess. You know what I'm saying? Like, and, and he, he just missed, I think, right? But, but he's, he's got the right heart, like, or he thinks he does anyway. It's not, but he, I mean, I'm doing the right thing here. Like I'm, I'm going to war. In John's gospel, when John records the same account, John says that Jesus looked and said, don't you know that I came to drink of the cup? It's like Peter, this is not the way it's supposed to go down. And look what Jesus does in the text. He takes the ear of this servant that Peter had haphazardly chopped off and he heals him. He puts the ear back on the servant and heals him. Like, just think about it, right? Like, this is big. Because this servant is what? Part of the clan, part of the mob. This servant is what? An enemy of Jesus. This servant, like everybody else, they want to see Jesus dead. But in this moment, in the garden, Like Jesus is extending grace not only to Jews, but Jesus is extending grace to his enemies by healing a servant. Now, look what the text says. So you come on down and, and you, you see what happens. And then Jesus said to the chief priest, temple police, and the elders who had come for him, have you come out with swords and clubs as if I were a criminal? Like every day I was with you in the temple. You never laid a hand on me. Jesus is essentially saying you had your opportunity day in and day out, but you did nothing. In the cover of dark, you're coming out here. And look at what it says. This is your hour and the dominion of darkness. Jesus knows what's going on. He knows that what's going on is a spiritual war. He knows that the enemy has entered Judas. He knows that the enemy, Satan, is trying to destroy him. But what the enemy, Satan, does not know, that God the Father is going to use the death of Jesus Christ as the greatest victory humanity has ever seen. You see what I'm saying? Like, it's an hour of darkness, but the darkness is not going to be long because Christ is going to triumph over sin and death. But then you come down and see what the text says. They seized him, 54, led him away and brought him into the high priest's house. Meanwhile, Peter was following at a distance. You remember what Jesus said. Jesus has just told Peter at the dinner table of the Passover, before the rooster crows, you are going to deny me three times. Luke records what happens. Verse 55, they lit a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together. And Peter sat among them. When a servant saw him sitting in the light and looked closely at him, she said, this man was with him too, but he denied it. Number one, woman, I don't know him. 
58, after a little while, someone else saw him and said, you're one of them too. Man, I am not, Peter said, number two. About an hour later, another kept insisting. This man was certainly with them since he's also a Galilean. I mean, after all, we're now in the courtyard of the house of Caiaphas, the chief priest. Like there's a Galilean here, like in the middle of the night, he doesn't belong here. Like what's a Galilean doing in the courtyard of the house of Caiaphas in the middle of the night. Certainly he's that other Galilean, Jesus. Certainly he's associated with Jesus. That's the only logical explanation that he's with him. But Peter, right, verse 60 said, man, I don't know what you're talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. And I bet you that in that moment, chills went down the spine of Peter as he realized what he had done. He had told his savior that he was gonna go with him to his death. But now three times in the courtyard of the house of Caiaphas, Peter denies his Lord. And look at what it says, verse 61. Then the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Now, Bible scholars debate over the look, right? Because you know this, especially if you're married, you know a look means something. Right, like husbands, your wife has looked at you sometimes and she didn't have to say a word. Like by that look, you knew, you knew something was wrong, right? Or, or for us as parents, like we, some of us anyway, have mastered the look. Like we know how to discipline our kids with the look, like looks say something. But Luke doesn't tell us what the look says. And so Bible scholars over the years have debated over this look because Luke wants us to know that Jesus turned and looked at Peter. What was Jesus saying in this look? Now, I don't know because the text doesn't tell us, but I can assume because we've seen how Jesus has acted up to this point with grace, compassion, and mercy. And I don't know this, but I just think that this is probably the case that when Jesus turned and looked at Peter, that what he was communicating to Peter was simply this, Peter, it's gonna be okay because he knew it. Jesus knew what he was going to do. He was going to go to a cross and die for Peter. And Jesus also knew this, that Peter was very different than Judas. Peter actually loved Jesus. Peter was a genuine follower of Jesus. Peter has already confessed Christ as Lord. You see what I'm saying? It's not that Peter's not a follower of Jesus. He is, he's just like us. He's hard-headed. He's stubborn. He has a hard time listening. But I'm telling you, when Jesus looked at Peter, I just really think it was that look of, it's going to be okay. And how do I know? Because when Jesus rose from the dead, you remember what Peter did? He ran. He ran to the tomb. He had to see that the tomb was empty because if the tomb was empty, Jesus was alive. And if Jesus was alive, there was hope for what, church? There was hope for forgiveness. And you remember the end of, of John's gospel. I mean, Jesus actually seeks Peter out. And asking three times, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And three times Peter says, yes, yes, yes. And, and Jesus restores Peter. He forgives Peter. You see what I'm saying? Like, like, so I think this look isn't a look of condemnation. Like, how could you? I, I think it was a look of, of mercy and pity and comfort. Peter is going to be okay. But you see how Peter responds. He goes out and he weeps bitterly, right? Like he knows it. 
He knows he's denied his Lord. He knows he's sinned against the one who came for him. He knows he's rebelled against the Messiah. He weeps bitterly. Here's why now. Like in this room, I think there are probably some of us who do struggle with hypocrisy like Judas. Like you're that cultural Christian who's always around, but you've never actually given your life to Jesus and surrender. But here's what I also know. Like in this room, like most of us are like Peter. You see what I'm saying? Come on now. How many of us are hard-headed? Don't raise your hand because it's all of you. Like how many of you are stubborn? Come on, it's all of us, right? Like how many of you have a hard time listening to what Jesus actually says to you? Come on, now we all do. So I think what this text is helping us to see are these two warnings. One, beware of a faith that does not endure, this kind of hypocritical faith that's around the things of God and maybe even intimately around the things of God, but never actually trusting God. But this passage is also saying to us, beware. Beware of a faith, going to the next slide, that does not listen. Because now how many times, how many times, church, has Jesus told Peter exactly what's going to happen? I mean, since the beginning of the gospel, Jesus has been telling his disciples he's going to Jerusalem to die, to die for them. But Peter, over the course of the gospels, just doesn't seem to get it. He just doesn't listen. He's hard-headed like you and I, like he's just really hard-headed. And so then the question becomes, right, like, like why is that? Why is it that Peter has a hard time listening? Well, there's lots of reasons, I'm sure. And why is it that you and me, why is it that we're so stubborn? Why is it that we're so hard-headed? Why is it that we have such a hard time actually listening to the words of Jesus? Why is that? Well, probably for lots of reasons, but let me give you a few. One, because we're just people who are so driven by emotion. I mean, in the moment, Peter sees it coming. He sees the betrayal of Judas. He sees the band. And in a moment like that impulsiveness, I gotta do something. He grabs a sword and he body fights it and chops off the dude's ear, right? Like this, that impulsiveness. And how many of you do that too? Instead of stopping and actually thinking about what Jesus has said to you, like when that difficulty comes or when that, those circumstances rise, instead of reflecting on what God has said to you and how God wants you to respond in those moments, how many of you just act? Like you just do, right? Like I got a problem, yo, I'll solve it, right? Like you just do it. You see what I'm saying? Nobody got that, but that was really good. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, but, but you do, like you just react. That's the kind of people we are. And then we have, now come on, come on. We have these stupid sayings, don't we? Like I've got this gut instinct. Like I don't care about your gut. Like I, I want you to have good gut health, but you know what I mean, right? Like, or, or you think about this, right? Like, like man, I just, I just feel like I gotta do this, right? Like, or deep down in my heart, like I just really think this is the right thing. And now, come on now, come on, be honest with me. How many of you over the course of your lives, you've made some decisions because man, your gut just told you to. Or you made some decisions because it just felt right. Or you made some decisions because deep down in my heart, I knew it was what I needed to do. And now you look back and say, man, my gut was really wrong. Right, like my heart, oh my goodness, my heart was so bad, right? Like we've been there. But that's, that's kind of who we are. We've got a, a sure foundation in Christ and we have a truthful word of God that, that teaches us by the power of the spirit how to walk in faith and how to live out the will of God. But we're a, a people that are so obsessed with just following our emotions. Now emotions, I understand, they're given to us by God, but emotions, they're horrible to listen to. 
because they're oftentimes just so sinful and selfish. Years ago, when, when Luke was really young, he was two or so, like Luke went from, from crawling to running and he never stopped. You follow? Like, like he, he's like his mom. He's got one speed fast, right? Actually, it's the opposite. So, so, but he's got one speed. He, he's just fast, which, which I love because I'm fast. So I mean, it's, but man, when he was a kid, like we just couldn't keep up with him. So we went to one of those baby stores. I don't remember which one it was, Babies Are Us or Baby Bath and Beyond or whatever it was, right? And, and so while we're in that baby store, I found it and it was genius. And I bought this thing and I was so proud of myself. I actually got a picture of it. But I bought a leash for my kid. It was amazing, right? Like we would go to the park, I'd leash him up and he would walk and just yank him back. We got a little bit too out of control. Like, like it, was, it was good. Like, and I'm thinking to myself, like I'm a parenting genius. Like, like I mean, this is wonderful. Like all of a sudden we had him under control. It was good. Now, every now and then I would notice that I would got some crazy looks from parents and I, I, I thought they were just reveling in my you know, genius mind and they went out to buy one too. I have no idea. But, 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 but I had him on this leash and it was great. So one day, because you know, I was just so proud of my parenting skills and what a genius I am, I decided to post a picture of Luke on his leash on Facebook and, and just to show off how good I am as a parent, right? Because come on now, like... That's pretty ingenious. And so, so I, I put this picture on Facebook of me walking my kid and, and I, just, I just wasn't prepared for the backlash. Like I thought I was a genius, but apparently I was cruel and inhumane and treating my kid like a dog. Like I had no idea, right? But like I started getting all these comments on Facebook, like what's wrong with you? Like what kind of parent are you? We're calling DSS, I mean, all those kinds of things, right? Like I'm thinking I'm genius, but everybody else on that thread had a very different perspective than I did. I just didn't think about it. I had a problem, right? My problem was I couldn't keep my kid under control. And so I solved it, right? I got a leash for him, which I thought, and I probably need to put it back on him now. You know what I'm saying? But like, like I, 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 I mean, I thought I was doing a good thing, but listen, here, here's what I'm trying to get across to you. I thought and I did. Had a problem, I solved it. And that's how so many of us approach life. Problem, I'm gonna figure it out, Right? And it's that impulsiveness. And you don't realize the ramifications of what takes place when you live that way. If I got a problem, I'm gonna figure it out, right? No, that's our problem. We don't listen to Jesus because we're so led by our emotions, right? Or we're driven by our pride. I can figure it out. I've got this. Don't need to listen to Jesus or anybody else for that matter. Like, look at what I can do. And that, that, that pride, right, it really is hard. Like, there's this need. I've got to be in control. Like, I can do this. You see, that's the problem for so many of us in this room that we're so stinking hard-headed because we're driven by our emotions. We're so given to pride, and we just think we have to be in control of everything. But you have a God who knows far better than you do, who loves you more than you love yourself and knows how to control your life in such a way that it leads to your sanctification and ultimately your glorification. I just want to remind you, because I know you know this, but you really don't know because we all struggle with it. God really does know far better than you do. And I'm just telling you, like he really does know how to control your life. Like you can really trust him. Like Peter could really have trusted Jesus, but none of us do that well because we're so hard-headed. And then what that leads to, because we're so hard-headed, is this constant backsliding and, and, and falling away and, and giving into our sin, right? Like Jesus is standing for us, yet we flee. 
because we're so hard-headed. We refuse to listen, right? So prideful. And it's not that we're like Judas, hypocrites. We genuinely love Jesus. We just don't want to listen to him. I began to tell you this last week, and I don't know if you remember this or not, but I began last week to make a comparison between the Garden of Gethsemane and the Garden of Eden, right? You think about the Garden of Eden. Like, here's the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve are there, and everything's good until they sin. And then when Adam and Eve rebel against God in the garden, what is there? Chaos, right? Brokenness, sin, destruction, punishment. And then from Genesis 3 onward, really is the story of how humanity spirals out of control because of a decision that was made in the Garden of Eden to step away from God's will. Now, follow me. If you look at the Garden of Gethsemane, it seems like the same thing's happening. Chaos, brokenness. Out of the Garden of Eden came this hopelessness. Is it ever going to change? And now it seems like, right, coming out of the Garden of Gethsemane, if we didn't know any better, like the same thing's happening. This cycle just doesn't seem to stop. Sin, brokenness, destruction, hopelessness. I mean, Judas betrays Jesus, and then it just goes from bad to worse. He's arrested, he's taken, and he's beaten, and, and Peter denies, and the disciples flee. It's like the story is just repeating itself over and over again. We come out of the Garden of Eden, and there's hopelessness and brokenness. We come out of the Garden of Gethsemane, and it seems like, again, there's hopelessness and brokenness and rebellion, just like there was in the Garden of Eden. But there's a huge difference between the Garden of Eden and the Garden of Gethsemane. Because out of the Garden of Gethsemane doesn't walk hopelessness. Out of the Garden of Gethsemane, when everybody else is rebelling, when everybody else is chaotic, when everybody else is deserting Jesus, out of the Garden of Gethsemane walks hope. And hope has a name, and his name is Jesus. And when no one else stands with Jesus, Jesus stands alone on a cross for us. The Garden of Gethsemane, as dark as it was that night and as gruesome as it would be, it was a place where hope was realized as the Son of God walks out of the garden. You see, what we know about this passage is that while everything is out of control, Jesus is in perfect control. In his sovereign design, obedient to the Father, going to the cross for us. And I just want to tell you some 2,000 years later, listen, hope still has a name, and it's Jesus. Listen, cultural Christianity is not your hope. Following your feelings, now come on, it's not your hope. Your pride is not your hope. Your stubbornness is not your hope. Your need to be in control of everything is not your hope. Your people-pleasing is not your hope. None of that's your hope. You follow me? The only 
living, eternal hope is the God-man, Jesus Christ, who came and lived the life that you could not live, perfect in every way, who went to a cross and died the death that you deserved and rose again from the grave three days later so all of your sins could be forgiven and you could be given the gift of life, abundant and eternal. Man, we really believe it when we say that Jesus is our only hope. And there are some of us in this room for the very first time, and I don't care, right? Like, I, I hear you. I know you've been at this church maybe a long time or you've been in a church a long time. Your mama brought you, your grandma brought you, all that kind of stuff, but you've never found hope in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so maybe for some of us in this room this morning, today is the day to find hope in a man named Jesus, to turn from your sins once and for all and to give your life to him. Find hope in the solid rock. Find hope in the one who went to the cross and died and rose again for you. You will not find hope in anything else but him. So how long will it be, my friend? How long will it be that you continue to give into a life of hypocrisy that will ultimately lead to your damnation? When will it be that you embrace the living hope who came out of the garden and went to the cross for you? If you're in this room this morning and you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, we wanna give you an opportunity to do so. In the corners of this room, there are two crosses. We're going to uh, have a prayer together, and then we're going to sing a song of invitation. If you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, I want to invite you to go to one of those crosses. There will be someone there who's ready to pray with you and help you today to begin a relationship with Jesus as you turn from your sins and turn to him by faith. Maybe you're in this room, and it's not hypocrisy. You're a follower of Jesus. You're like Peter. You love Jesus. But man, you sure are hard-headed. You have a hard time listening. And maybe right now, you know that area of your life where you've been refusing to listen to the voice of God. And maybe for you this morning, follower of Jesus, this is just a time of repentance. Lord, help me. Lord, help me to hear your voice well and to do what you say. Forgive me my pride and my stubbornness and my need to always be in control, that, that impulsiveness to be led by my emotions and help me just to listen to your voice and follow it. However, God is letting you respond this morning respond to him as we have time of invitation. Father, thank you that you love us for this time that we can be in your word together. Now, Father, if there's one in this room this morning who's never placed his faith or her faith in Jesus, I pray that person will come, trusting you as Lord. And for those of us in this room who are followers of yours, help us to cling to the hope we have in Christ, to listen to your voice, to obey your voice. So we trust right now that your spirit is at work among us. You are moving. Help us in these moments respond to your voice in obedience and ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Rise to your feet as we have time invitation together. You come now as the Spirit of God leads you.